From the JAMA Network, this is the JAMA Medical News Podcast. Discussing timely topics in clinical medicine, biomedical sciences, public health, and health policy featured in the medical news section of JAMA. Hello, and welcome to JAMA Medical News. I'm Jennifer Abbasi, and I'm excited to be joined by Dr. Linda Ray Murray. Dr. Murray is an adjunct assistant professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago School of Public Health. She retired from clinical practice in 2018 after 40 years as a general internist. Until 2014, Dr. Murray was the chief medical officer for the Cook County Department of Public Health. She was also formerly the bureau chief for the Chicago Department of Health under Mayor Harold Washington. And she worked as medical director of the federally funded health center serving the Cabrini-Green Public Housing Project in Chicago. She is also a past president of the American Public Health Association. We are so honored to have you with us, Dr. Murray. Thank you. Well, it's wonderful to be here. So today is Juneteenth. It is the day that we commemorate the ending of slavery in the United States. So as we grapple with the coronavirus pandemic, which we know is disproportionately affecting people of color, we are simultaneously speaking out as a nation against systemic racism and police brutality against African-American men and women. So it is truly a historic moment in our nation's history. I was hoping we could start with COVID-19 and the health inequities, the longstanding health inequities it has exposed. So in the U.S., black people account for 13 percent of the population, but 24 percent of COVID-19 deaths where race is known. And blacks, Latinos and American Indians also represent a disproportionate number of cases. In Illinois, where we both live, Latinos by far represent the most cases. So can you talk to us about some of the many factors that are driving these numbers? I think this global pandemic gives us an opportunity to really look carefully at health inequities. A lot of people blame the differences in health status on people's personal health behaviors. And certainly as a clinical physician, those are critically important. And like most physicians, I spent time with my patients working on those difficult things, stopping smoking, watching your diet, all those things. But really, what we understand more and more is that the conditions in which people live, the structural factors, we call them, uh, how the country votes, whether or not people have medical insurance, whether or not people are able to get sick days, These are all things that influence individual health and health of populations in profound ways, certainly more than just their individual personal habits. So with this particular pandemic, when the numbers first came out, and let me first congratulate those states, Illinois was one of them, that began to publish the data early by race and ethnicity. When those numbers first started to come out, some people reflexively said, well, that's what you expect with a population that's poor, with a population with challenges. But there's more to it than simply that. Yes, if you have a comorbidity, that's an issue. But in our area and in most of our urban areas, the essential workers, and let me be clear who that is. Yes, there are doctors and nurses and people that are working in healthcare, but there are also people that are stocking the grocery stores and delivering the Amazon packages and you know, running the subways and the bus lines These essential workers in the main are underpaid, low-wage workers, often don't have sick time, and so they have a special pressure to go to work. And if we know in the Chicago area, the parts of our area that have high numbers of essential workers are the south side, the southwest side, the western suburbs, and they match very well 
with working class, low income working class communities and black and brown communities. So I would argue that all of these structural factors, the things that force people to have hypertension, like racism, the jobs that people are forced to have, the fact that if a member of the family gets sick, they don't have a guest house or a basement for someone to stay in, that you have multi-generational households in relatively small spaces. All of these structural factors really help account for these horrible differences in case rates and death rates. Okay. Something that has been discussed is the idea of working from home, which is something that I have the opportunity to do, is a privilege for a lot of people, a privilege that a lot of people don't have. Absolutely. If you have a low-wage job and your job is restocking grocery shelves or checking people out with their food, you can't do that from home. There are other realities, too, that we've seen with our kids in school is the issue of digital divide is very real. I'm a physician, a retired physician. I live in Hyde Park, the community of the University of Chicago, but my Wi-Fi is not as good as other places in the city. And further on in Black communities and Brown communities, even if you could afford Wi-Fi, it's not always there. This is going to be a big problem. So yes, working from home is a privilege. Most people cannot really do it. And also the tools that they have, even when they can or are forced to work at home, like our four kids in school, there's a real problem with doing it. What if you have three kids and you have maybe if you're lucky, you might have one computer. So I think the notion that we've solved everything just by doing everything through Zoom is a mistake. That's not a reality. And people are going to be suffering because of that. What do you think about air pollution as a potential factor. I know that researchers are looking into possible associations between air pollution, which we know communities of color have higher exposures to, and COVID-19 susceptibility severity. Do you think it could be a factor? I wouldn't be surprised if it's a factor. Again, I, I I would argue that as clinicians, we're used to thinking about a number of different factors as ideological causes for diseases. We don't always know exactly what percent might come from air pollution or something else. And we don't often know the pathways, the physiological pathways through which these factors impact the human body. So do I think air pollution is unhealthy for people? Absolutely. As an occupational environmental specialist, I know that that's the truth. Do we have a clue about what impact that may have on COVID-19? No, probably not in a definitive way yet. But fortunately for us, the challenges with COVID-19, we do know what we need to do. We do know from basic public health that we need to contain the disease. We need to search for decent therapeutic measures while we can, while we're waiting for hopefully a vaccine. So I don't think it's critically important how much air pollution might impact COVID-19 in a negative way. I wouldn't be surprised if it did. I think what we have to concentrate on as clinicians is what do we need to do to minimize people having morbidity and mortality from this virus? Back in April, a young man on Chicago's northwest side held a house party to memorialize two friends who were killed by gun violence. And this was when the city was on full lockdown and he was very publicly shamed. He went on to apologize and to say that he hadn't seen much information on the dangers of the coronavirus. And this, to me, seems like a major failure of public health messaging. So do you feel that Chicago and the nation, for that matter, did enough to get the message out to minority communities, including the African-American community? I think the question becomes, what message went out and how did it go out? 
And how does it compare to what other people have to do? I happen to have two young women, three young women, two in Chicago, who are my granddaughters. And believe me, one just turned 21 and one just graduated from high school. So the fact that they would be on lockdown doing these momentous events is like mind boggling to them. I think we have to do two things. One is when we give messages as the medical community, we have to try to be clear, not only clear about what we know, but also clear about things that we don't know. So to the extent that the advice that has come to the public changes without a full understanding of why it's changing, to the extent that our political leaders cause more confusion than shed light on what's going on, it confuses people. The other thing I have to say is young people are young people. And so I know myself that while basketball rims were pulled down on the south side, on our basketball courts, on the north side, basketball rims are still up in white communities. So I think we have to be a little careful about the shaming. I think it's horrible that that party took place. And I feel sorry for those young people. And they clearly didn't fully understand what was going on. And so we have to find ways to talk to each generation. And in the way that they're not going to be watching the evening news or CNN, they're on social media and other things. And I think since that event, as the pandemic has gone on, that we've seen lots of people, Common and one of our local rappers um, and other media and stars, both sports and music, have come out to try to help explain this. I thought it was really important that Dr. Fauci, for example, came on Trevor Noah's program, had a session with Stephen Curry. So I think you have to form your message so that it reaches the audiences you need to reach. So we have one message for old people like me and another message for young people like him. Do you think that the messaging has improved and that more people are being reached now? I think more people are being reached only because this is going on for three months now. But I think our messaging is not improved as much as it needs to. People, unfortunately, expect to come to the doctor's office to know right away what's wrong with them. They don't even understand how tentative the regular tests we do are. They don't understand uh, the differences in that realm. And they expect to get a pill or a shot and everything to be fine. Now, obviously, we're not able to do that with COVID-19. We're not able to do that with most diseases. So I think to reassure people that we're working on a vaccine, to be clear. So we've seen, well, maybe a vaccine will be ready next year. If a vaccine is ready in 2021, I think it'll be a, close to a miracle, especially if you mean actually in people's arms. So I think it, we have to tell people this is how normally we approach these issues. This is how long vaccines usually take. Even if we discover one or two effective vaccines by 2021, it'll take another length of time before we have enough supply and distribute it around the world. That message has to go out. And it has to go out repeatedly all of the time so that people have realistic expectations and they can make adjustments for that. So that means we have to, as physicians, be willing to say, we don't really understand this pandemic completely yet. We don't understand everything this virus does. These are the things that we're trying to do around the world to understand it. And here's what we can do collectively as a community in this present time. Uh, so we have to be willing to admit and be a little humble about what we know and what we don't know. Yeah. So transparency, honesty, managing expectations, not overpromising. So Dr. Patrice Harris, the immediate past president of the American Medical Association, has said that she has been trying to dispel a misconception among the African-American community that black people can't get COVID-19. Do you have any idea where this myth arose, what it's all about, and how pervasive it's been and potentially how detrimental? 
It's interesting, these street myths are always a source of amusement and joy for me as a physician. I think today, most Black communities no longer think that, fortunately. But in the very beginning, when this was advertised as a virus which started in China, so you have to think about who from America and Europe goes to China, not not working class people, Black people on the south side of Chicago. So in the very beginning, people who were working in China, people that were tourists in China, people that were engaged in world travel, were the first few people in the United States that get the disease. And so then it gets in people's mind, well, I don't know anybody with the disease, so it must not be happening in the Black community. Today, you know, surveys have been done and more Black people know someone who has been sick or in the hospital or died than white Americans. So I think today that myth is not a problem in, in the Black community. Similarly, here in Chicago, I know in Little Village, Pilsen Little Village, a predominantly Mexican community, in the early days, they said, well, you know, Mexicans can't get this. That's something that's happening to Black people, but it's not happening to Mexicans. And, and obviously, we know today in Chicago that the Latinx are the highest number of people with COVID-19. So communities without information, without accurate information, they invent explanations for what's going on. There are also conspiratorial theories about where it can, just like we saw with HIV. There are conspiracy theories about where things come from and what the motive is. And as physicians, we have to deal with that honestly and openly. I remember early in HIV, there were lots of problems in minority communities about why HIV existed, who invented it, et cetera. So this is something that always happens with pandemics. And we have an obligation as clinicians to give the information as accurately as we have it, and again, to entertain people's questions and not just dismiss them. What about distrust of the medical establishment in the Black community? Can you talk to us about whether you feel like that's had a bearing on the COVID-19 pandemic? You know, that's always a problem. It is real, and it's hard to say that people are wrong for having a level of distrust. Both of my parents have been dead for a few years, but I remember when they were still here, sitting at their table, trying to help them figure out what Medicare plan to sign up for and trying to convince them to get certain preventive things, you know, flu shots, et cetera. And they stopped at one point. I'm their eldest child. I'm the only child that's a physician. Um, They stopped and looked at me and they said, Linda, we don't trust doctors and we haven't forgotten that you're one of them. So this is from your proud parents. I think that African-Americans have every right to distrust clinical medicine not just for Tuskegee that people often refer to, but for how the structural racism in medicine as an institution, in our hospitals, in our health clinics, in our insurance plans, in how we talk about and think about people of color and Black bodies. It's a constant source of irritation. It's a constant reminder that we are viewed lesser than and then perhaps we're not quite human. So that reality, that historical reality is here, it's reinforced every day. And so I understand completely the distrust that people have for physicians as a group. Fortunately, I can say as a practicing physician, people tend to like their own physician if they, if they keep going to them. Uh, so they may in fact really like their own clinical physician, no matter what race they are, but that doesn't mean they trust the institution. And that's why I think it's so important that we not have higher than thou attitude on how we deal with people. We really have to not be judgmental. We really have to try to understand the real world struggles that people have in in following instructions and thinking about how to make themselves healthier. So yes, we have some distrust. There's distrust in the white population too. 
Uh, most of the anti-vaxxers tend to be people who are white Americans. So we really have to find a better way to communicate with people that live in this country and gain their trust. And I think that starts by admitting what we know and what we don't know and having a reasoned conversation on what people need to be concerned about and whatnot. It's always interesting to me that even though every year I struggle and struggle to get my patients to take a flu vaccine, when COVID-19 hit, people were calling me up, is there a COVID-19 vaccine? So again, people's attitude toward disease depends on so much else in terms of how society talks about it. Are you concerned about when we do have a vaccine, if it will be available for minority communities? Absolutely. So I support a single-player health system. I think it's a moral problem that this country doesn't provide medicine, medical care at the point of service free for everyone. You should not be restricted from seeking medical care when you need it. It should come out of our basic tax system. That's my firm belief. And I think this pandemic makes it even more obvious. We can't have people hesitating getting a test when they need one because they're afraid of a bill. Even people that have been hospitalized and sent home being told that they don't have to worry about that particular COVID-19 hospitalization, they go home, they need oxygen, and all of a sudden they have a giant bill. It may not seem giant to someone who is a physician, but two, $300 is a huge bill for many, many working class families. So they go home, they're supposed to have home oxygen, but they can't afford to pay for the oxygen. It is a crime that this, the richest country in the world, cannot provide medical care for everyone in our borders. So I do think that, that this is going to continue to be a problem, and getting vaccine is part of that. There should be no barriers to getting the vaccine. We have to make sure that the highest priority, the people that are causing the most, that are most in danger of spreading uh, the virus, get the vaccine first, healthcare workers first, responders. And we have to make sure there's a global approach because we shouldn't think we can vaccinate the United States or even vaccinate North America and ignore the global South because the virus will just be back here again. So this does require a global cooperative effort, not only in just trying to discover a good vaccine, but also implementing, putting it in people's arms. I read this great article in ProPublica about the first 100 people to die from COVID-19 in Chicago, and 70 of them were black. And what the article pointed out is that a lot of people in the black community in Chicago waited for a couple of different reasons to go to the hospital. And one of them being that they didn't have faith in some of the lower resource safety net hospitals in their neighborhoods. And so they waited. And by the time they got to the hospital, it was too late for them. What are your thoughts on that? I think people know intuitively that we are an under-resourced community. Um, and uh, they may not know clinically when somebody might need to be in ICU or when somebody might need a ventilator, but they intuitively know that all the resources one would like to have are not in our communities. Also, they understand what co-pays, et cetera, mean. Um, and I think people also have other realities. If I, if I go to the doctor and I can't work for a week, what does that mean? Uh, so I think especially early before some of the unemployment uh, uh, stipends and stuff were put in place, this was a real problem. It will continue to be a problem. Um, and so people have lots of real world reasons. Who's going to take care of my mother if I go in the hospital? Who's going to take care of my children if I go in the hospital? So we have to, as a society, if we're going to address this pandemic appropriately, we have to put those structural supports there to support people. You can't ask someone to isolate for two weeks because they're infected 
and you don't provide them with a way to do that. You don't provide them with food and you don't provide them with a way to protect their family members. And you can't ask people to be in quarantine without those social supports. So we are really teetering on the edge. I'm very concerned as we enter the fall with K through 12 schools about to open. We really have not thought through what we need to really support families and individuals in this time. This is not going to be a return to normal anytime soon. And we have to put those societal things in place in an organized way to allow all of us to survive. What do you think about the lack of demographic data that we've been experiencing? This is something that hurts me to my heart as a public health person. We have allowed over the past 25 years the public health infrastructure that existed in this country to crumble. In the past 20 years, we've lost a quarter of a million of public health workers in governmental public health. And so the reality is, for example, that most health, big health departments like the city of Chicago or the county of Cook, they have under 30 contact tracers. How is that possible? That shouldn't be possible. And so, yes, we have major problems and deficits in our public health infrastructure. Our laboratory system has been decimated when I first did my residency. Most places, most state health departments and local health, large health departments had labs, had their own labs. Most of those are gone now. We're fortunate in Illinois to still have state labs functioning. We've lost many of our public health nurses that really were entrenched in the community, that went door to door, talked to people, knew about the communities. There are many countries in the world where every child that's born gets a visit from a public health nurse, whether you're the daughter and son of a millionaire or whether you live in, in a poor community. We have not kept up with the computer and data management infrastructure that we really need today in public health. We're behind in some of these phone apps in terms of contact tracing. So we have a system, it's like a rusty bridge with holes in it that we're trying to combat this pandemic with. And I hope one of the things that we learn from this is we cannot allow our public health infrastructure to decay like this. This is critical to the survival of the nation. Are we doing better in collecting demographic data on COVID-19 at this point? Well, the last time I looked at the national numbers, or certainly, well, let me talk about Illinois because I know those better. We're still at about 15% of people, of the tests, having race and ethnicity blank. Another problem, again, it's not a surprise, but it's just a question of the infrastructure to do it. We know this is spread at workplaces. Look at our meatpacking plants. Look at the nursing homes. The way we collect data makes it more difficult to easily, quickly see those areas where we have spread going on. Our jails, prisons, nursing homes, college dorms, there's some that you would normally think of, but we don't actively do it. And the other thing we're missing critically is what we're taught in school we're supposed to do is active surveillance. It's not enough to know a year from now where these disease happen. We want to know right now so that we can respond immediately. There's a problem at this plant. There's a problem at this restaurant. There's a problem over here. So that really requires a system of active surveillance with rapid turnaround, with staff that know what they're doing. Less than a third, there are 3,000 health departments in this country. Less than a third of them have even one epidemiologist on staff. That's criminal. And that's because we've decided to cut government workers and we decided not to invest in public health. We have to change that because that's what we, that's like we have a fire going on and we've defunded the fire department. That's what's going on now. We have a global pandemic and we've defunded our fire department to put out the fire. So with the response to the killing of George Floyd and other unarmed black men and women in the United States, we are at another 
reckoning over race and racism in this country. An estimated one in 1,000 black men in the U.S. will be killed by police over the course of their lifetimes, according to data. And the risk is also greater for other people of color. As a physician, how do you think about this in the context of keeping communities healthy? This is an emotional problem for me. Native Americans have always and still today uh, are killed at the highest rate from police killings. I am a mother of a black man and he's 49 years old now, but I still have terror in my heart if I know he's going out for to a party or, and when he was younger, it was true terror. And I would not feel any relief until he came back in the house and was physically all right. There is no way to overstate the terror that lives in the hearts of black mothers all over the country. And to see George Floyd murdered in front of you on TV, it's something that I intellectually understand happens every day in this country. Before cell phones, I knew it happened. But now when it can be visibly taped and when police can know they're being filmed and still continue to murder people, I can't even describe the kind of rage that I feel. It is impossible for a family, a black or brown family, a Native American family, or community not to be terrorized by that reality. And there is no way you can protect your loved ones by that. There's no way you can be protected. Black physicians, especially male physicians, when they go out in the street to the cops, they're just another black man. So the fact that this reality is now obvious and being of notice to most Americans is a good thing. But for me, as a 71-year-old Black woman, this has been here all my life. And I'm glad that the young people, I'm glad that my granddaughters and their generation are out in the streets protesting this. When I was their age, I was out in the streets protesting police brutality. We've had this problem in our country for centuries. And I hope that Americans come to grips with what we mean by structural racism. In medicine, for example, I can't tell you the surprise I felt in 2008 when the American Medical Association apologized to the Black community and Black physicians. But we have to go beyond just an apology. We have to really work together to change how we educate our physicians and other healthcare workers. We have to work together to change the face of our profession we have to work together to change how we think about and diagnose disease. We have a lot of power and authority and respect as physicians, and we know what we need to do to have healthy communities. And we need to speak out forcefully and strongly and say, no, this is what we need to do to have healthy children in our schools. This is what we need to do to have healthy seniors in our communities. We know what to do. We just have to come together and begin to do it. So you have said, Dr. Murray, that you are devoting the rest of your career to being an enthusiastic, full-time troublemaker. So what does that mean? As much as a 71-year-old <laughs> woman can, yes. So what does that mean for you? Well, the first thing it means is talking to young people. We've been through this before. When I was young, when I was a child, I listened to my elders. I listened to my great-grandmother, who explained to me as a child, Linda, white people are always going to knock you down. And what you have to decide to do is how often you're going to stand up. And that's really something that I've carried with me my whole life. So 
I spend time with young people and talk to them about what I did when I was young, what my grandmother did, what my great grandmother did, and answer their questions and help them figure out how to lead in this time period. I think it means making sure that I continue to speak out about problems in our profession. I spend a lot of time trying to make sure that the number of black and brown students that get into medical schools increases. It means being politically active and working in the area where I have some expertise, medical care and public health. It means working very hard to make sure that no physician has to hesitate on what x-ray to order or what lab test to order or what medicine to order simply because our patients can't afford it. We shouldn't be hamstrung like that. As physicians, we should be allowed to practice our craft with some dignity and respect and not worry about all these regulations and a million insurance forms. We need to have a single payer healthcare system. So in whatever years I have left, that's what I'm trying to do to work with other people and make sure that when I'm gone, I've left people behind that have learned a little something about how to cause trouble for me. Wonderful. We look forward to seeing what else you have to show us. Thank you so much, Dr. Murray. We really appreciate you being here today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Take care.